0: And welcome to this Monday edition of Back to the Bible Today, once again, we're looking at life lessons from King David In fact, we'll be doing this over the next two weeks And so we invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1 As Bible teacher John Newfeld brings us a message entitled Israel's Great and Flawed King When the
1: average person is asked, you know, what are the things that come to mind when you think about King David? Well, I suspect that for many it's, well, yeah, David, isn't that the guy that's the man after God's own heart? And you may think that because you know that there's a line that's found somewhere in the Bible that's used in that way to describe David. And what you might not know is that that line about David is actually given before we actually meet him. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Israel's first king, Saul, goes from being a humble man who wants to be faithful to God to being a man who is just unable to trust God. And the Bible tells us that Saul was attempting to gather an army to fight against the Philistines and it, it was a very tense and a trying time. And King Saul's waiting for the prophet Samuel to come and to offer sacrifices to God, but Samuel doesn't arrive at the appropriate time. And then in his haste, and because of his anxiety that his army might scatter, King Saul, in direct violation to the law of God, takes the initiative and he offers the sacrifice himself. See, he can't do that. It's forbidden of him because he's not a Levite. He's not a priest. Now, he's just finished sacrificing when Samuel does show up. And Samuel knows immediately that God will not tolerate such a rash and a disobedient act. And then we come to First Samuel chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And that's it. That's the one and only time that David is called a man after God's own heart. And up to that time, we haven't met him yet, but we know that some man after God's own heart is out there somewhere. Well, we know that there's more to this statement. Because for one, you know, the book of Psalms, which contains 150 poems or psalms or songs of worship, We know that David, the great king, wrote 73 of them. That's just too shy of half of the Psalms of Israel. See, it's undeniable that praise, that worship, even complaints and cries of, you know, God, where are you right now? Well, all that's going on in the songs and poetry of Israel's greatest king. And I suspect that even if you've never read the Bible, you've probably heard of one of them, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, it says. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and, and he restores my soul. Chances are, if you've heard little else of the Bible, I'll bet you've heard some of that psalm. That's a psalm of Israel's great king, David. See, whatever else you think of David, and we're going to examine a great deal about his life. We're going to examine both his successes as well as his horrifying sins and failures. See, whatever else you think of him, it becomes difficult to deny that this man was constantly working out all the details of his life, that includes his doubts and his frustrations, his anxieties, his, his victories, everything he did, he did it in relationship to and in interaction with his God. You know, if you think that the title, Man After God's Own Heart, means that he was always faithful to God and, you know, always avoiding sin and always ever increasing in the graph line of holiness, always this splendid example of what godliness looks like, If that's what you think, you're going to be disappointed in him. Indeed, I suspect you might even be disillusioned with David. He's definitely not a scandal-free politician. But just perhaps, and what I'm telling you now is good news. See, we all need role models, and as we all know, when one of our role models disappoint, when they falter in sin, it's very tempting for us to just simply write them off. I think that's especially true in our present-day culture where redemption is so often lacking. Forgiveness is always being withheld. Righteous indignation against the sins of the rich and the powerful. See, that flows so easily from all of our lips. Most of us love to clap when the powerful man is dethroned. We love to proclaim that we don't trust any one of them. And so when we begin to learn of David's sins of power, well, we might feel tempted to think of him in the same way that we do of others. A man after God's own heart? I think not. Uh, But two things should be borne in mind. First, the Bible never presents us with unrealistic and idealized portraits of anyone. And when we read about the men and women of faith, and then the Bible tells of their sins... See, we're not supposed to clap and say, I knew he or she was really a hypocrite after all. We're supposed to see ourselves in them. See, we're supposed to take heart because, listen, we too have our own inventory of sins. Is it then just possible that if David could be a man after God's own heart, that you know we might also be able from him to learn what it means to be a man or woman after God's own heart? Second thing. Seeing the sins of David shouldn't make us cavalier about our own tendency to sin. It's not meant to teach us, look, David sinned, so if I sin, well, I can still be a man or woman of God. See, that's not the point. What we're going to see is how David so needlessly suffers because of his sin. Sin always has consequences, and we mustn't deny that reality. And that's what we're going to learn. But that doesn't mean that God is going to cast us aside. See, unlike what we see in our world, which offers no redemption for sinners at all, God does. See, studying the life of King David does mean that we will, like him, have to face our own sin, no longer hide it, but openly acknowledge it. David's life is the story of a great king, but he's also a flawed king. Let that encourage you. But before we dive right into our study of Second Samuel, let's stop and just get our bearings. For Samuel, at least a large part of that book, is the story of David before he became king. Samuel the prophet finds him as this you know, ruddy young shepherd boy, and then he anoints him as the next king of Israel. And in short order, he, still a young nobody, faces Goliath on the battlefield and proves himself to be both a man of amazing courage as well as a man of strong faith. This is a man after God's own heart. But it doesn't take very long for King Saul to view the young David with a jaundiced eye. See, since Samuel has already made it known that that God has rejected King Saul and that he's chosen a man after his own heart, Saul eventually becomes certain that that man must be David. See, instead of seeing David as a powerful servant and ally to the king, Saul now believes David is devising treachery to overthrow him. And during that time in David's life, we see him as a man who bears all the marks of amazing humility. He absolutely refuses to seek power. If God has chosen him for the kingship, well then, it will be God who accomplishes that. David will not wrest power from Saul's hand. And even in those moments where it seems that God has delivered Saul into his hands, David resolutely refuses to do any harm to the king, the one he calls the Lord's anointed. See, in those days, when David has little power, he is largely exemplary. Uh, But he does display a weakness. While he's fleeing as a fugitive from Saul, and he's supported by a standing militia of 600 men, he's in need of all the necessities of live food, friends, protection, all that stuff. And so David and his men provide service to some of the farmers on the far ends of Israel's territory. He protects them from raiders, and they in turn feed him and his men. But all that goes wrong in the case of one fool named Nabal. It had been up to David, he would have killed Nabal and every male in his household. But God intervenes and stops him. But we see that David has a weakness. He is able to overreact and abuse power. And that becomes a problem. And then the world abruptly changes. Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in the battle with the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And so we move from the disastrous reign of Saul to the next phase... And it's no secret that a great many are going to look at David to become the next great king. So several things need to be borne in mind. Saul's kingdom was never a cohesive unit. In its best days, it was a challenge for Saul to rally all Israel together. At each battle, he needed to gain buy-in from the troops, and he never had authority to command and simply get it done. Furthermore, Saul never had secure borders or secure boundary lines for his kingdom. And there were cities within his governance that were held by Gentile powers, and he was never able to subdue them. And his headquarters was in the town of Gibeah. It's less like a capital, and it's more like a fortress intended to keep him safe. And he's going through battle after battle for supremacy with the Philistines. So Saul functions more like a commander of a large militia rather than what we would think of as a king. That's the situation that David faced when Saul died. The Philistines had just then won a stunning victory, and Israel as the people of God were in great distress. We might have expected David to suddenly emerge as the great king and rally Israel around him, but that's not what happens next. And that's just a part of the drama that we face when we study the life of David.
0: This is Back to the Bible, Bible teaching you can trust. At Back to the Bible, we have researched life transformation for years. What God has revealed is fascinating and insightful. A key discovery from the Center of Bible Engagement Research is the power of four effect. What is this? It is that the life of someone who engages Scripture four or more days per week looks radically different from the life of someone who does not. In fact, the lives of Christians who do not engage the Bible most days of the week are statistically the same as the lives of non-believers. Someone who engages the Bible four or more days a week is 30 to 32% less likely to struggle with loneliness or destructive thoughts. 59 to 60% less likely to view pornography or feel spiritually stagnant. They are 62% less likely to drink excessively and 231% more likely to disciple others. So we want to encourage you today to get more engaged in God's Word. And to help you on this journey, we invite you to download our free Bible engagement app today. Just look for BTTB Jamaica in the App Store. Now, as we prepare to get back to the Bible, let's rejoin Bible teacher John Newfeld with the conclusion of today's study.
1: Second Samuel one one begins by saying After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziglag. Now Ziglag is in the Negev, or the southernmost region of Israel. It's in a territory that is to the most part just desert. While David and his men were out, the Amalekites attacked David's town and they kidnapped the wives and the children as well as carrying off most of the wealth, and they burned the town to the ground. Just a bit of background study reveals that the Amalekites were ancient enemies of Israel, going all the way back to the time of Moses. They were a nomadic people group. They would migrate down to Arabia, and they would live off of raids as well as trading. And David, if you know the story, took his men on a lightning raid, And he found the camp of the Amalekites and he slaughtered the entire camp and he rescued the women and children as well as their belongings. You know, that kind of action demonstrates for us how capable David was. You know, as a military commander, he's a a tactician, he's a mighty warrior. And as David was moving everyone back into Ziglag, news comes to him. King Saul is dead. Must have been while David was defeating the Amalekites. Saul was being defeated by the Philistines and David is successful Saul has lost his life. You know, the distance between these two simultaneous battles would have been about 130 kilometers or 80 miles apart. You know, in ancient terms, that's a long way. So let's keep reading our account in verses 2 to 5. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead also. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Now, as we study King David, we find that one of the things he is definitely not, he's not a fool. You know, first of all, David's suspicious. As we learn in just a little while, this man is an Amalekite a man whose national heritage goes back to the very same people group that kidnapped David's wife and children and burned their village to the ground. And furthermore, David is deeply suspicious of this man. Did he survive the battle, or has he gone AWOL? as he run away from the fight? And furthermore, who is this man that David should trust him and his story? See, David needs corroborating evidence before he makes any decisions at all. So we keep reading verses 6 to 10. And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Now, before we consider David's response, there's something we must not bypass in this account. According to 1 Samuel 31, which accurately recounts Saul's death, we're told that the archers of the Philistines found Saul. That means that they identified him on the battlefield, and they managed to sink several arrows into his body. And Saul's badly wounded, and he wants his armor-bearer to kill him, lest the Philistines find him alive, and they molest him while he's dying. But the armor-bearer refuses to kill the king, and so Saul takes his own sword, which he would have planted the handle into the ground, and the blade would have been facing him, and he simply fell on top of his sword and died. So that's the true story of Saul's death. Now this Amalekite has changed the story. He says the Philistine chariots were close at hand and Saul was in anguish. Perhaps he's wounded. And so knowing the battle has gone badly, he asks this man to kill him. And says this man, look, I was the one to kill the king. I know it's the same king that's been hunting you down, David. So I saved you. And so the Amalekite has somehow procured Saul's crown and his armlet, which I've got to assume was adorned with a royal insignia. And he took it from the dead king and he gave it to David. Again, we have to assume David's no fool. See, he already knows some things about power. You know, one lesson about power is that it becomes harder and harder to know whom you can trust. But a good leader immediately identifies power grabbers. See, David knows this man wants the privilege of anointing Israel's next king. Ah, to be a a kingmaker. Who knows what comes next? No doubt it's positions of power. I mean, he would be the man who killed the last king, and he would be the man who put the symbols of power on the new king. And for all those reasons and more, David immediately mistrusts him. David had himself refused to kill God's anointed king. Who did this man think he was? Clearly, he's a man without ethics. He's a lawless man who would delight to kill kings for his own advantage. Notice that David will allow no victory party over Saul's death. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 says, Then David took his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So we notice how David weeps. First, he weeps for Saul. And if that surprises you, that David would weep for a man who was trying to kill him, it shouldn't surprise you. You know, when evil men die and are taken to judgment, the time for repentance, the time for turning around ends. But I think there's something else here. I think David would have preferred it if Saul would have repented and become the kind of king that Israel desperately needed, one who is faithful to his God. I know that if that had come to pass, David would never have been the king. But here we find David's heart. Later, when David is repenting of his own sins, Psalm 51 verse 17 will record him as saying, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so David weeps over a man who did not repent, a man who found no favor with God. How does one rejoice at such a time? Next we find David weeping for his friend Jonathan. Jonathan, the man who had pledged loyalty to David, would have become his greatest confidant and his greatest source of strength. And then David weeps over the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. They've been defeated. Many a woman would have become a widow that day. While he and his men were securing their wives and family from the raiding Amalekites, the men of Israel were dying and their wives were becoming widows and their children were becoming fatherless. And the thought of that staggers David as he leads his men in a time of mourning for the nation. Good leaders are people who don't think of themselves and the advantages that their leadership can bring them. Good leaders lead for the sake of those whom they lead, not for their own advantage. You know, in this way, David wonderfully mirrors the attitude of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, in that sense, Jesus is the greater David. Luke nineteen forty-one to 44 records this. See, Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing that the people of that city would soon turn against him. They would conspire against him. They would reject him. They would nail him to a cross. And there, as he overlooked that rebellious city, and knowing the misery they would suffer for their sin, takes no time to gloat, but breaks down and begins to weep. Good leaders love people. Good leaders weep when they see evil. Good leaders give their lives for their people. Jesus did that. And David, in some fashion, begins to mirror what his greater son will later do. I wonder whether the Amalekite who brought David the news was shocked by what he saw. In the end, David, seeing what was in that man's heart, orders him to be executed. But here's our first life lesson from King David. Men and women who are men and women of God don't rejoice in the destruction of their enemy. They would rather give their lives for the redemption of their enemy. But that's not just true of leaders. It's true of all people who have learned the life of Christ. We love it when people come and repent of their sins and change their ways. But for those who gloat when they triumph over others, this is not the attitude that Christ taught us to live. Let's always reject that and be the men and women God wants us to be.
0: Dr. John, thanks so much for today's message. You know, this, I believe, once again, is going to be a great series. Let me start out by asking this question, though. You know, we live in a day with prolific self-promotion, but David doesn't seem to work that way. He never seems to gloat over his successes or other people's failures. What can we learn from that? Yeah, we
1: do learn a lot from people when they are successful. I mean, yeah, we learn when we fail too, but, but success sometimes leads to a, an attitude that, um, that is condescending towards those whom we've defeated or uh, is really egotistical and ego-filled. And, and David's the man after God's own heart. And it gives us a wonderful example that, that God is calling us to do the same.
0: Thanks for joining us today here on Back to the Bible, brought to you by Back to the Bible Broadcast Jamaica, in a partnership with listeners who give in support of this ministry. Our office is located at Shop Number 22, Hagler Park Plaza, Kingston 10. Our office hours are from Mondays through to Fridays from 8.30am through to 4pm. We can be contacted via email at backtothebibleministry@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Our office number is 876-926-5765 and our cell and WhatsApp number is 876 3376295 to listen to this study again or some of our previous studies they are available in our free mobile app along with other bible engagement material just look for bttb jamaica in your app store that's bttb jamaica you can also listen and download our studies ...from other podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Be sure to look for Back to the Bible, Jamaica. Before we go, unfortunately we had numerous delays in mailing out our 2024 calendars. However, we were finally able to mail them out last week. And so, especially those with post office boxes, please... Ensure to check later this week into next week for your calendar. Our sincerest apologies for the delay. We invite you to join us tomorrow as Bible teacher John Newfeld speaks to when David becomes king. That's tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Jamaica, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.